So welcome everyone to this Twitter space. Today we are looking at COP27, arguably the biggest climate event of the year. We are doing so with Anne Knappen and Francesco Rampa. Anne is our head of climate action and green transition. And Francesco is the head of sustainable food systems here at ECDPM as well. So good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> so both uh, Francesco and Hane were in Sharm El Sheikh for COP. Uh, ECDPM co-organized a few events uh, and they were also listening in on um, the discussions being held so they can give us a really uh, insider's perspective on what happened these past two weeks. Uh, COP27 took on an incredibly challenging agenda, loss and damage, adaptation, implementation, climate finance, Together for Implementation was even the official slogan of the whole event. Uh, and one of the highlights of the final climate deal uh, was the establishment of a loss and damage fund that, according to official statements, will support particularly vulnerable developing countries. So my first question is actually, what was your reaction to this pledge? A lot of people called it historic. Uh, what do you say? Anne, let's start with you. Well, um, I think that's a very good question. Um, you could say that a decision uh, to set up a fund for loss and damage was one of the successes, let's say, of uh, COP27. So this, um, the whole idea is to fund, so the Global North should fund um, reparation, so the, the, the impacts and the losses due to uh, disasters and also slow onset events. This is, let me emphasize, an issue that has been pushed for by most vulnerable countries and the small island development states for almost three decades. So it's not something new, but um, it got a lot of focus now and um, the European Union and also the US, among others, agreed to set up this fund. Um, but um, so this was also a big uh, topic of discussion during the previous COP, COP26 in Glasgow. And um, the EU was then blamed for not um, signing an agreement on the setup of this fund. It was a very complicated and technical discussion. But so this year um, is very good news for the, the least developed countries, especially that this fund is going to be created. Um, you mentioned a pledge. It's not really a pledge because it remains to be seen how much funding will go actually to this fund and who is going to fund it. And also which countries, which, who are the most vulnerable countries, who is going to, to benefit from this funding once it's there. Uh, there was a whole discussion about Pakistan not being included into the list of least developed countries that would get funding once it's there. But at the same time, Pakistan is used all the time as um, a country that particularly due to the floods over the summer is uh, a country that is really best example of loss and damage. So and they will also have to work on a definition like what is loss and damage due to climate change. Um, so there is still a lot of work uh, to be done. A lot of questions remain. Noted. And, and Francesco, from, from your end, what did you think? Yeah, totally agree uh, with that analysis. I would just add that if you look at on aggregate and, and for the future of our planet, the loss and damage decision um, in a way was important from, from the perspective uh, of, of uh, many to have as a counterpart uh, decision uh, the commitment, especially by today's largest emitters, 
I agree. Eh? China and India today's largest emitters among some of the, the crucial ones. So totally true that in the past it is Europe, US, etc. We emitted a lot. But if you look at today's emissions and the importance to guarantee a future uh, where we can live happily on this planet, keeping the temperatures under 1.5 is absolutely crucial. And what did not happen at COP27 was stronger progress towards that, especially by countries like China and India. So the loss and damage is a win, definitely, for the southern part of the world. But it could have, hopefully, stimulated, especially China and India, to do more to keep the planet in terms of emissions under 1.5. And, and that didn't happen. So if you want, it's a bit of a, a missed opportunity. And, and also, there was no formal recognition, for example, that China uh, could then be considered today as part of those who would put money into the loss and damage fund, given that it is true they didn't contribute many decades ago, but now they do contribute so much to emissions. So one was expected that China would take a more mature role and contribute to the loss and damage fund, but that uh, is not there yet. So uh, mixed uh, reactions in terms of what the loss and damage could have stimulated in terms of broader uh, pathway towards keeping temperature under 1.5. And that's a missed opportunity. Okay, so we have a, a loss and damage that is an opportunity, but with some terms and conditions uh, applying. Uh, and, and apart from from this, from this uh, from this announcement, what were there other parts of the final agreement that uh, that caught your eye, Anne? Well, I think that um, overall the outcome of this COP twenty seven has been rather disappointing. But uh, perhaps another area of promise is that if you look at the final Sharm el-Sheikh implementation plan, there is um, one paragraph that um, says that um, delivering funding, so climate funding, will require a transformation of the financial system. And this is very important. I think this, this just mentioning this can be the start of really an overhaul of the, of the financial system. And this is something that has been pushed for by a number of champions, let's say, during the negotiations. One of these was Mia Motti, the prime minister of Barbados. And uh, so she put forward a so-called Bridgetown initiative. And it's something that we should follow closely to see how this will how this will eventually be impacted. But um, one of the proposals that they have is to provide emergency liquidity. So they are asking for um, a change also of the way of working of the International Monetary Fund. Uh, one very concretely, so they have a whole list of, of proposals is, with one concrete, is to rechannel as at least 100 uh, US dollars, US, 100 billion US dollars, sorry, of unused special drawing rights to those who need it the most. There is a lot of focus on using the private or mobilizing the private sector for mitigation and also even for loss and damage uh, through a new multilateral mechanism. Um, they look very closely at the role of the multilateral development banks and how they should change and expand multilateral lending to governments. They even talk about expanding this up to one trillion US dollars. So um, a lot of focus on finance and new sources of finance uh, than the typical public banks because we uh, public um, governments because we know that the the finance gap is huge and public funding is n probably not going to close this gap so it's very important to look at new 
actors and um, it's something that has started already incrementally with some sm small success stories here and there but hopefully by having this now in the final implementation plan having these new ideas this bridge down initiative among others this can be the start of a complete overhaul of the financial system it's a very interesting uh, initiative then and one to, to keep our eye on uh francesco from from your end you know, as someone who works a lot with sustainable food systems, particularly in Africa, uh, was there anything that caught your eye in, in that field, even if, you know, it was disappointing, maybe? Yes, I would say that indeed, if you look at the final results, probably the area we work on here in terms of food systems at ECDPM and so many others in the world trying to, to put much more central uh, the, the, the role of food systems for climate change, that's, that's a miss. That's a disappointing factor. Uh, for the first time, uh, the COP saw uh, food pavilions being organized. There were at least three, four uh, areas where a number of stakeholders like us discussed the importance of food systems. Just to recall quickly that food systems globally emit one-third of all greenhouse gases emissions. And also agriculture is the most impacted sector currently with a strong uh, implications for food insecurity. Climate change is definitely one of the causes why food insecurity is uh, worsening instead of improving. Uh, that, uh, as a consequence, many parts of the world, both public and private people and stakeholders like think tanks, were recommending that the COP27 puts much more formally a discussion on food systems on the table there were some discussion in the previous year on agricultural purely, on the production side, the Coronivia process. And there was a, an item on the agenda COP27 to expand possibly the discussions uh, in the UNFCCC on the full food systems, and that was denied for different, very different reasons. Uh, but especially uh, the G77 didn't want that. They don't want to close their um, policy space to discuss food systems. It was a bit of a defensive action also on the part of the United States. So it only remains a discussion in the future for four more years in a Sharmer Shake uh, joint work now to discuss agriculture and food security, but without even mentioning food systems. That's very bad. And then a second area that I find it is a pointing factor uh, following through the, the points by Hane on finance. It's very, very stunning that uh, only 1.7% of international climate finance reaches smallholder farmers. Agriculture is not at all an area that is uh, receiving resources, despite it's so crucial for so many billion people in the world, and, and smallholders produce a third of all uh, produce uh, we eat in the world, but they do not get uh, climate finance. So there was a, a lot of action, including in the f uh, two side events organized by ECDPM in these food pavilions at COP27 to promote much stronger use of climate finance for the adaptation of food systems, in particular in Africa. A lot of arguments of why this makes a lot of sense, and there is no trace in the final decision of this. Uh, at COP26, very importantly, there was a pledge to double globally uh, finance for adaptation to climate change. So as part of that, there was a big hope and push in the past year for COP27 to adopt a work plan to specify what that doubling would mean who would put the money, what instruments. And as part of that, a lot of people like us were saying in the doubling adaptation finance plan, agriculture should be explicitly and food systems clearly 
maybe even a percentage, 20%, for example, like a target to make sure we fill that gap of resources reaching smallholder farmers who are suffering so much from climate change in order for them to adapt. And that, again, uh, didn't happen uh, at all. So unfortunately, a lot of us were around this negotiating table trying to argue for it, but it didn't happen. So uh, something we need to work on in the future. Mm -hmm. And if we zoom in now on COP27 through a Europe-Africa lens, as that is the focus of our work here at ECDPM, we know that Europe-Africa climate diplomacy has weakened in, in recent years. Still, were there any specific climate pledges focusing on, on the two continents, Hanim? Yeah, it's um, rightfully so that climate diplomacy, we see that a lot in our work. Uh, we, we analyze that a lot, that climate diplomacy has weakened in recent years. There are a number of reasons for that. Um, the, it's One of the issues has been uh, problems with the vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine distribution, um, then which uh, Europe could not meet the demands of African countries. Of course, the whole fact um, that uh, the EU has not been able to close the adaptation finance gap, um, although the EU together with the EU member states is quite a large contributor to climate finance, but um, demands are much bigger than, than the support that is currently being given. Then there is this whole discussion about the external dimension of Europe's green transition. So um, to give you an example, there is, um, there is a quite negative perception of Europe's carbon border adjustment mechanism known as CBAM, um, in which um, the EU is raising the standards for production of sectors such as steel or aluminium and the African um, African countries feel like this is being imposed on that on them and it will be very costly for them to meet um, the the um, very high requirements of Europe and they are not feeling supported in this process so all these are reasons for diplomatic relationships uh, weakening. And um, at the same time, uh, you see that the African position has become much stronger in recent years, much more unified. Also, I would say much more assertive and uh, very strongly there. So they, they are very unified on topics such as adaptation, the support that they need for adaptation, also on loss and damage. Um, that's very important. And all this is based on the principle of climate justice and um, historic responsibilities that the global north has vis-a-vis the global south so um this this is a really strong position they take there and europe is not always able of course to meet these demands also europe as whole due to among others the russian invasion in ukraine is very much under under pressure this has socioeconomic repercussions for europe itself it's putting a lot of pressure on budgets so we are finding ourselves overall in a geopolitically very difficult situations situation and this has implications for um, Europe-Africa climate diplomacy also very concretely. But about specific climate pledges, you were asking, there is um, <clears throat> an interesting announcement that uh, Vice President Timmermans did during the second week of the COP. So he announced that the EU, together with a few member states, including the Netherlands and Denmark, will provide 1 billion euros for adaptation. Um, which is, I think, a very positive step forward. However, we should follow this closely to really understand how much of this 1 billion euros is uh, not coming from already um, uh, already agreed funds, how much of this is repackaging of already existing funds. So um, 
there is there is possibly always another side to each and every announcement. The same for the EU that has um, shown itself being a strong supporter of to set up the fund for loss and damage. But at the end of the day, how much is going um, in this fund? Which member states are going to promote this? I already heard from um, some Belgian politicians, so this is not the official position right now, that um, there is um, very little or even no budget available to put in such type of funds. So this will be politically a very sensitive discussion, I can I can already imagine. So it's always, it seems, one step forward and then one or two steps back. It's, uh, it's so difficult to come to agreement despite some interesting pledges and of course, um, for this, Europe needs energy supply, um, especially uh, for gas, and it needs um, Africa for this. Um, there is already African gas we see is already accounting for 20% of European gas imports, and it's likely to increase. So there are a lot of uh, discussions ongoing between the EU and, and uh, African countries to um, to uh, support. Europe with gas, but even heard that this is quite controversial, that um, Germany is um, bidding to invest in gas extraction and um, gas extraction and LNG, so liquidified natural gas. But um, at the same time, um, they're also working on plans to reactivate coal-fired power plants in uh, to support electricity generation in Germany. So there is often, as I said, a double side to, to every initiative and, and every pledge, um, even if these seem to be positive. And any, any Francesco, from your end, in terms of these double-sided uh, pledges that you saw between Europe and Africa? Well, I think uh, following on what uh, Hanne just said, I think it is very interesting, though said, partly that uh, thinking so much as we do at ECDPM that Europe and Africa could have much stronger partnership for the future of the world and the planet and, and the SDGs, that Africa really, the two sides didn't work together clearly in preparation of this COP. Uh, Africa uh, kept its negotiating position throughout the last few months and at COP27 much more close to the G77. Uh, we have seen this, for example, in the case of uh, a very defensive attitude uh, in terms of agriculture and food systems, keep uh, policy space rather than committing to doing much more uh, on agriculture and food systems in Africa. It had that uh, defensive attitude in terms of keeping the possibility of doing much more in terms of extraction of fossil fuels. Whereas in our opinion, I think it's quite clear that uh, and that led, by the way, to the fact that, yes, Timmermans and the European Union partly announce and pro pre present themselves as winner uh, out of COP because of this uh, offer on contributing to loss and damage. But as I said, uh, on the other hand, they lost on this 1.5 much stronger action in terms of keeping temperature below 1.5. If Europe uh, and Africa would have worked together much stronger, I think they could have both uh, obtained more if they were to become uh, really an ally in the preparation of the COPs, they could do much more. Uh, it could have been an alliance, I, I don't want to say, on every single aspect of this very complicated negotiation, but at least two, three big deliverables and a bit much more coherence in what the Europeans are discussing uh, with Africans. As just Hanne said, you could have put on the same table the discussion of uh, sustainably increasing fossil fuel, especially gas extraction from Africa, and put it on the same table of this 
uh, quid pro quo on loss and damage versus 1.5 ambitions. And it could have created a package where Europe and Africa could have progressed on the loss and damage, but also progress on a better and a clearer path. For Africa, of course, using some of its natural resources, but to do it in a sustainable manner and knowing that in the end, fossil fuel, all fossil fuel will have to be phased out. That's science telling us. So it could have been a package of win-win and without absolutely uh, forgetting that that should have included, as I just said uh, earlier, the issue of protecting farmers uh, from in, in Africa and smallholder farmers in particular from climate change. Much more should have been done and prepared together by Europe and Africa to make sure that adaptation and financing or the adaptation of agriculture and food system in Africa becomes really at part of the core of the old COP27. And the two sides didn't really coordinate on this. And the result is that smallholder farmers get nothing out of COP27. Uh, finally, I have the million-dollar question for the both of you. You know, COP27 is done. The loss and damage uh, fund was announced. There's this European announcement that Hani mentioned to further adaptation in Africa. But truly, where do we go from here? How can countries ensure that all of these uh, pledges and commitments actually do come to, to fruition? Well, this is a very good question and a very difficult one. Um, it's, it's, there is no one answer to that. Um, what we see, of course, is that a lot of these pledges are voluntary. So that you need to, of course, follow up what, to see whether countries are actually implementing promises being made, whether the, the promises of these finance, like the, the, this 1 billion euros um, announcement to fund adaptation, ideally with new and additional uh, sources, whether this is actually going to be followed through. Um, so you need, of course, watchdogs, you need civil society um, and to, to also make governments accountable. I think there is also, this is something, um, an, an area for further discussion, also the role of beyond the public sector, the role of uh, investment, the role of um, private sector also um, in, in climate action. Um, but if, if I go back to, this, to the watchdogs, if we if can use that word, there is also a very special role, I think, to be played by young people. During the COP, there were a lot of youth delegates and they have very, um, very clear priorities. For example, in, for Belgium, one of the priorities is to integrate climate much more in education systems. And this is also, of course, relevant in, in whichever context, also in, what, in African countries, the role of education um, and for, to build climate awareness um, and so they had certainly a platform these young people and uh, but uh, yeah whether that will actually then be implemented what they are asking that remains to be seen but um, if, if again looking at climate finance because I think it's really one of the core themes of these COPs um, and bridging the climate finance gap I think um, there is there are limitations when it comes to what countries in the global north, let's say, can do. Um, so it's we should also look further beyond. I mean, we have already discussed earlier now in, in our conversation, this the transformation of the financial system and um, looking also at the multilateral development banks and so on. So having really this full you know, greening, um, a full integration of climate throughout whatever type of financial transaction, but also looking at how much 
countries can do um, with their own domestic resources. So I like to use the example of Bangladesh. Um, there were a lot of events uh, at the COP also where people from Bangladesh were speaking. And so they are using more than 7% of their GDP for resilience building in their country. I think that's a really good example. And they have this whole of society approach where climate is being mainstreamed throughout all line ministries. I think it's a good example also for other developing countries uh, also in Africa. and But uh, the same also for, for countries in in uh, the, the West or in the in the global North, let's say, to have a full, full integration. And this is also something that the EU is trying to do, um, integrating climate throughout all their development projects and allocating 30% of the budget to climate. So there is a, slowly a move forward, but I think also in the context of developing countries, it's a debate uh, to be held. Of course, they are heavily adapted in many cases, so it's not always realistic. But at least moving towards a whole of society approach, I think it's the best way forward for implementation. Then it's very difficult, as we have been saying here multiple times, to come to a final agreement um, that everyone is happy with. But um, you need very like champions. You need uh, certain countries to who can push forward the agenda. I think. The best example here is Miyamotli from Barbados, who has played a very strong role also in building coalitions with other countries. There are some countries in Europe also playing, who are very visible during these negotiations. I think uh, Ireland is, is one. Also the Netherlands, with uh, their very strong adaptation agenda, is very um, um, apparent, very visible. Um, and, and having smaller coalitions, um, of coalitions of the willing, let's say, to to move the agenda forward, to to ensure that pledges um, are are actually coming to fruition, and and even beyond these negotiations at the at the COPs, there is more, much more going on than than what what you see as a formal outcome. Uh, it's really a place where strategic networks are being built. Um, and and where also investments and so on are are being discussed and and being agreed, all happening in the sidelines of the formal negotiations. Francesco, I think I, I again totally agree on what Hannah is saying and building on what she just said. I think it's a very important message to remind ourselves that despite uh, we've been today indicating more or less copper. As a bit of a missed opportunity in many failed areas, everyone's uh, role is crucial. Every citizen is making choices. When we eat, when we buy, uh, we need to have that in mind. Clearly, uh, we are uh, we have an impact as consumers on, on the planet and the future of our future generations. In that sense, democracy remains crucial, despite this, you know this uh, slow progress of intergovernmental uh, processes like uh, COP. Uh, you can also see the very recent cases where democracy uh, helps going in the right direction. The United States, uh, for example, uh, the administration Biden keeping the Senate means that the very progressive legislation to cut emissions in the next few years of still one of the largest emitters in the world will succeed. We have seen what happened in Brazil. Uh, Lula, even if not sworn in yet, was at COP27 with a much more progressive agenda. He was one of the stars of COP27. He has repeatedly said that he will stop the deforestation of the Amazon, which is, by the way, very, very crucial uh, to avoid the war, uh, warming of the planet. Um, many say as important as uh, cutting emissions will be uh, preserving, uh, restoring forests. 
So choices of voters, choices of consumer can, uh, if you want, fill the gaps of intergovernmental processes. So that is something we all need to think uh, moving forward and then looking at our own work and Europe-Africa relation. I think I would say two things. As we've tried to do with our own side events at COP27, and we will increasingly do with partners from Africa, we need the external out of the negotiating table of the COPs. We need to, as Sane said, keep highlighting the lessons learned, the real investments taking place, the good coalition among a smaller group of countries. We need to, to um, if you want, cross-fertilize the reality on the ground into the negotiating tables. Absolutely crucial that when things don't happen, uh, we support smaller group of countries to make progress, for example, on the importance of food systems and, and financing adaptation of food systems for the future of small of the farmers and everyone. So we will keep, uh, if you want, mixing formal attention to the negotiation with the reality of progressing on the ground in individual countries and in individual sectors. And also, I would say, as much as it has happened, I want to give a concrete example on group of countries and coalitions making progress. You know, one of the positive things that happened in the last couple of years are the joint um, energy transition partnerships, where certain countries, especially South Africa last year, uh, Indonesia this year at COP27, agree on a much more ambitious and clear path towards contributing to keeping uh, warming of the planet below 1.5 with green growth. And they receive massive amount of resources to the tune of billions and 20 billions in the case of South Africa and Indonesia. They get rewarded. Financial markets, public donors can reward ambition on uh, climate action. If this was, for example, to happen in the space also food, that would be massive improvement. So we can think and ECDPM will be working in the next year towards something like that, a similar model like the joint energy trans transition um, partnership towards a sustainable food systems, if you want, transition partnership where uh, public and private resources can reward uh, sustainable food system pathways. And I think that would be very important uh, for Europe and Africa to think as a model to work together towards and thinking of COP28 and COP29. Uh, as we have said before, crucial that the European Union and the African Union together think what are the common interests, not on everything, but identify two, three key deliverables where negotiations, diplomacy need to become together. And we can think in the next year, in the next couple of years, really Europe and Africa being a serious alliance as a group of countries that want to make faster progress and they arrive at the COPs with a united front on certain issues, showing what they invest jointly in, and that would be a crucial improvement in the way generally you Africa uh, become players and partners for our global future and the SDGs. Thank you, Francesco. Thank you, Anne, as well, for sharing your views on what COP27 achieved, what it didn't, and also sort of the way forward and how uh, Europe and Africa can, uh, can perhaps partner up uh, to achieve some, some climate goals. Thank you also to everyone for, for joining this, this Twitter space. Let me just remind you that you can re-listen to this uh, later on and that this is also going to be a part of our COP27 uh, podcast series. You can listen to all the previous uh, episodes on our, on our website and you can listen to our conversations with experts. So there's a lot of uh, episodes for you to, to check out related to COP27. So thank you. Uh, again, Francesco and Anne, thank you everyone for, for joining this. Thank you.